Welcome back to the program. History is a funny thing. Time goes by, books are written, and we think we know all there is to know about a particular time and place and set of events. Yet the complexity we sometimes feel about ourselves and our own modern life is no less true for history. The true interpretation of motives and events we thought we knew is always evolving and surprising us. Thus it is with history like our own American Revolution. As we look around the world and try to understand other revolutions and the yearning for independence, perhaps we'll better understand it when we understand more clearly our own history. My guest Thomas P. Slaughter has done this for the American Revolution. Thomas Slaughter is the author R. Miller Professor at the University of Rochester and the editor of Reviews in American History. It is my pleasure to welcome Thomas Slaughter here to talk about independence, the tangled roots of the American Revolution. Thomas Slaughter, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Great to have you here. One of the things that we often think about when we talk about independence and the American Revolution is that we think that it was isolated to simply what happened here in America. And in fact, the the context is larger than that, as you talk about. It was a world war. It was an event that in part took place because international trade uh, and politics had become more fully integrated than it had ever been in the previous history of the world. Um, Great Britain, the British Empire, was trading to Asia, Africa, uh, throughout Europe, and the Americas were integrated into those economies. So what happened in Holland, you know, you've got a banker in the Netherlands who calls in his debts. That's going to affect a merchant in London, the people he's dealing with in India, and the people he's trading with in North America as well. So Americans uh, were part of an international network uh, that was uh, fixed by the policies and the trade patterns in a, in a much larger empire. So, yeah, it wasn't a small, isolated set of communities, which is the way we often think about it, but it was a function of the, of the whole world sharing you know, an economy and a politics. Why does that so often get left out of the history? Why have we been so myopic in our view of the revolution and of independence? Good question. I think part of the problem, and this is only part of it, but it's where what comes to mind first, um, is that we would like to remember our revolution as a unifying event. Uh, and it was that and also an incredibly divisive event. And once we you now move off where we would be most comfortable in thinking about our revolution, uh, we get to places that we're not really sure are part of the stories that we, we like to tell. For example, um, never more than 40, 45% of Americans supported that revolution. Uh, so never half um, were fully in, in, in favor of what was going on there. In all of the wars, to pick another example, in all of the wars that America has fought, never has a higher percentage of the population died than in the American Revolution. Now what that means is that the chances that you knew somebody, that you were related to somebody who died, were greater in that war than any war we fought since. 
And that's sure not the way we tell that story, is it? It's sure not the way we think about the revolution. But it was Americans fighting Americans, as well as Americans fighting soldiers that came from across the Atlantic. And it's, it's very hard for us to think about it that way. To what extent does thinking about it that way, understanding both that and the broader global context that we were talking about before, to what extent does that change our interpretation of our place in history and really what it means to be American? I think that Americans have in independence a core cultural value. One of the ways we think about ourselves is focused on that independence, and that that has ramifications both for individuals um, embodied in the Bill of Rights, uh, and also for us collectively as a as a culture, as a nation, as a as a people. We have in the modern era. Uh, tried to export independence, uh, and we have tried to export it to people who really haven't shared our uh, valuing of it. Uh, I suppose Iraq is the most blatant, you know, um, in-progress example of that. Uh, have we been able to successfully export it? Not really. Um, and the other thing I would point to, I guess, is that the flip side of our independence, of our, our cultural, political, uh, legal uh, valuation of independence, is a as uh, a narrow definition of what community is, and I think that's directly to the to, to the question you asked because when Americans in the 18th century uh, thought of their independence and thought of community. They, they most valued the most local communities. So Americans' independence defined community very narrowly. You were part of a community that was your parish, was your village. Um, and the people from the next village weren't necessarily your problem. They weren't necessarily your community. And so always in the 17th and the 18th centuries, from the perspective of the British Empire, it was very difficult to get Americans to think about the relationship between their community and their independence and any larger entities to which they belonged. Now, if you take that culture, that habit, that set of values, and move it from the 18th century to the 21st century, it's got some really dramatic and probably significantly more dramatic implications, right? So we've got these fossil fuel-producing states, the states that produce coal and oil. Um, and you suggest that, well, maybe we should try to regulate um, coal-fired uh, plants and uh, pollution caused by um, oil uh, as as well and other fossil fuels, um, because when you when you run a plant in Indiana, it affects the people in Michigan and affects the people in New York because the wind blows. It affects the people in New England. It affects the people in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, and and it's hard for us to think of community in those larger interconnected ways. Uh, so we live with the legacy of this independence that is rooted in a narrow definition of community. 
and the implications of that in a world that is much more fully integrated, not just economically, not just politically, um, but obviously environmentally. And so, yeah, our clothes too, right? Um, we all know this. Most of our clothing is produced in, in Asia um, by people who aren't paid very well, who work under bad conditions and all of that. Are they part of our community? They're the people who are producing our clothing. It's very hard for us, isn't it? It's very hard for us to, to think of our community in those larger ways. And that's all part of this American notion of independence, I think. One of the things that's so interesting about that is the inherent contradiction and tension between that localism that you're talking about as it affects people's attitudes then and now, and also the globalization then and now with respect to the larger context in which events take place. And that tension seems as if it was just as strong then as it is today. It was just as strong then, and the implications for it are even greater today. Yes, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And then we have the other dimension, and the other dimension besides spatial is, is across time, too, right? And we're actually still very focused on a conversation um, that started back then uh, that's about you know, strict construction of language, of rights, of, of documents, of, of rules, um, and thinking of the texts that come down to us, particularly the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, in a much, much different world, in a 21st century world. And so we have these, these contradictions, and they're, uh, to a large extent, they're not really conversations, are they? They're, they're people talking past each other about whether we're bound by um, an, un, an understanding of language and law and culture from the 18th century, or whether all of that evolves and grows. And we're just talking about eight, the application of 18th century ideals in a 21st century situation. When we look at it beyond the local communities and this attitude that you've been talking about, how did the founders themselves see this tension? They struggled with it. Uh, when they tried to get, um, going back um, again to the 17th century, but even um, more in the, the middle of the 18th century, when they tried to get American colonists to work together, it was always a struggle. Um, they had a hard time, for example, getting soldiers from Massachusetts to fight in New York and soldiers from New Jersey to fight in Virginia. They were much more willing to fight close to home. Um, they themselves had these locally, the founders, had these locally based values, <clears throat> their sense of community. Thomas Jefferson throughout his life, for example, when he used the words my, co my country, excuse me, when he used the words my country, he meant Virginia. He didn't mean the United States. He didn't, he didn't mean um, something larger. And <clears throat> so they were trying to work within a, a, a culture in which they saw very clearly the contradictions they saw the limitations, but they also saw the necessity for trying to get people to think larger, bigger, 
Um, and this was the problem with the British Empire. So the getting the colonists to think of the perspective of London in which they had to think about, you know, we're responsible for people in India now that, who are part of the empire. Uh, there was a drought and there was a flood and there was a famine and major proportions in India in the middle of the 18th century, and the British felt responsible, and that's where some of these laws come from, uh, where the British are trying to uh, get people in America to abide by a set of regulations that are going to help the empire in India, and it was very, very difficult. What's remarkable, I suppose, is that these same attitudes, these issues that you're talking about, are still with us 12 generations later. Yeah, when I when I've gone, absolutely, that's absolutely right. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but when I've gone into different workplaces, you know, I've I've taught here at the University of Rochester. Before this, I was at Notre Dame, and then for a long time, I was at Rutgers in in New Jersey. And and you have these workplace cultures. And mm-hmm. I always say to people, you know, the hardest thing to change is a culture, and a workplace culture is so much smaller compared to a national culture that to talk about changing it seems to be really incredibly ambitious and unlikely. And it's interesting because people, on the one hand, think of cultures as being somehow fragile and delicate when they deal with them, but yet, in many ways, they're like these weeds that take root that just can't be changed. They're re- you're right. They're, they're really persistent. They're, they're really invasive. Um, and I think what makes it even more complicated is the fact that we don't really think about it. You know, it's kind of, it's just the way things are. Um, do we really explore in ourselves? How often do we really explore in ourselves what the filters are, what the ideologies are that lead us to experience and to value or to criticize things in the way we do? Um, that sort of introspection uh, isn't as much a part of our culture as uh, uh, might lend itself easily to change either, I think. And perhaps at the root of that, it's certainly true in companies, and you get to the heart of it in independence, that it has so much to do with what the founding mythology turns out to be. Yeah, and we don't know, we don't agree about what to do about that um, today. Um, We slide so easily between the mythology and and the history. And I know in my in this field of history, when you write about the American Revolution, it's one of the time periods and subjects of American history that is more politicized than most others. The Civil War is another one. Um, race relations are, uh, you know, across the board, um, uh, another of those two. Um, but uh, there's a difference, right, which your, your, your question recognizes, between the mythology and the history. And if you're trying to separate the history from that mythology, you, you often make people upset. And I think they a lot of times don't even really know why, why they're upset. But we have a set of agreed-upon myths that work for us. 
And we're really fonder of those myths than we are of the history, I think. In many ways, as it is true for individuals, and we've certainly seen it with all the discussion over the years about memoir, the mythology becomes the history. As some historian once referred to it, it becomes our remembered past. Yeah, and and that's really... The, the first book I wrote, was published in 1986, uh, was... Uh, called the Whiskey Rebellion. It's about an event in the 1790s in which George Washington leads troops against American citizens. I have a, a chapter in that book that's about George Washington, and I remember being shocked how upsetting that chapter was to some reviewers, because I argue that the fact that George Washington was the major absentee landlord in the area that he took the troops to repress this rebellion against the whiskey excise tax. When he might have chosen other places to go, I was just arguing that the fact that he knew these people, the fact that he had um, uh, investments in that land land itself, uh, the fact that he was interested in that land, undoubtedly played a role in the... Um, in the decision to take the troops to western Pennsylvania rather than to what is today Kentucky or North Carolina, where people weren't paying the tax either. And I just was not prepared for how angry that met some people, uh, that made some people. And the reason it made them angry, I think, is because they saw it as questioning George Washington's integrity. And as we all know, George Washington's integrity is a core part of our national myth. Um, but I, I, I just got this that they weren't really self-conscious about why that upset them. Um, and I found that when I've written books that have touched on religion also, you know, that, that people of given faith groups aren't really interested in the history of their faith group or the, the history of their faith group's role in historical events, whether it's in abolitionism, in the case that I've written about, or, or elsewhere, they really just want to hear stories that are going to support the myth they have, rather than stories that are going to reveal the history. And I guess that, that's very human. I, you know, I've, I've come not to be as surprised by it, um, and certainly try not to um, take offense at it. It's just, it's just true. We think it's history. Um, but maybe it's not. Um, but whether it is or whether it's not, we're a bit happier with the mythology. Religious groups are certainly that, that, that way. What's interesting is that it certainly is true with respect to our own mythology and our own history, as you're saying. Where it leads us astray is that we seem to have this inability to apply it to other places, other cultures, other nations, that we don't appropriately respect their mythology, their history, and the way it's so difficult for other nations to change, even to bend to our will sometimes. Yeah, and I think that's because uh, we don't recognize the degree which our beliefs are informed by mythology that leads us to be less sensitive to the degree to which other people are operating based more on mythology than on what we might consider to be historical reality. And talk a little bit about that, about the fact that what is it in our makeup, in our history, that prevents us from doing that? I or, or is it just or is it just human to nature? Question whether that is just plain human 
or whether there is something distinctly American about it. And I think the answer is probably that it's both. Uh, but we certainly have a sense that we have a good understanding of what the story of our American Revolution is all about, what our founding story is. Some people you could call it a founding myth. We're very comfortable in our knowledge of it, and we're very uncomfortable with challenges to it. I know, you know, when you, if you just pay attention to what's going on in the world, I get the sense that the Irish have a lot of that in their culture, too. And like I'm saying, I don't know whether some cultures have more or less informed um, mythologies than we do. But I remember reading about uh, the way people tell stories about um, Irish independence and about the violence that occurred early in the 20th century in Ireland. And the author whose book I was reading said what was most remarkable to him is the number of people who can tell you things that they remember and then you go and check it, and you find out either that they weren't born when that happened, <laughs> um, or that they were two years old and couldn't possibly have the kind of, uh, or weren't there uh, when it happened. But it's an honest memory. It's not something they're making up just to talk to a reporter, you know? They think they remember things. It is that strong. Thomas Slaughter. His book is Independence, The Tangled Roots of the American Revolution, just out from Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. Thomas, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jefferson, great talking to you. Thanks. Thanks to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 